All right, what's going on? So now, uh, the third part here of Hegel, covering only the chapter titled Spirit. And it's a long one, so that's why we're going to give it all of our attention today. Uh, so before we jump into that, a few things to say. You can find this on Podbean or Apple Podcasts or any other service, probably. Uh, also, I have Instagram for anyone who's interested in that. Mostly just pictures of my cats uh, at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. And also I have a Patreon account for anyone that is willing slash able to contribute to that. It would really mean a lot. And I want to extend a thanks to my patrons like Liam, Nicholas, Jacob, uh, Ramona, and Sebastian, who have all been help helped me quite a bit. Uh, and any little bit counts. So if anyone can, that'd be great. If not, totally cool too. But for now, let's hop right into it, because this is a long one, and it's pretty important. Oh, and I'm also going to include timestamps for the big kind of sub-chapters. So if anyone just has to read one of those or is curious about a single one, you know, you'll be able to easily find it in the description. Now we must begin by making a distinction here. So when we're talking about spirit, we are not talking about absolute spirit. These things are different. In fact, this whole chapter is going to be us working towards this thing called absolute spirit. So to just give a little bit of a recap, in the previous sections, chapters, Hegel was interested in looking at, you know, nature, among one thing, kind of early-ish state formations maybe a bit, uh, but now we're really going to kind of hone into what it means to be in a state, to be in a community, and what that means for individuality, and how the two, that is community, and individuality can flourish together, if that's possible. So I see that, I feel that kind of preface is necessary because if you don't have that grounding, reading this can be really strange because Hegel's is really jumping all over the place. Now, in this chapter, we're going to go through three broad phases, and these more or less correspond to the three sub-chapters, but I'm going to lay them out in advance just so, you know, you're prepared. So the first is going to ask the question about what it means to be an ethical agent within a community. As a person, what does it mean to be ethical? The second one asks, what does it mean to be in contact with culture? How does culture change what it means to be uh, a subject or mean to be a person? And the third one asks, what does it mean to be moral? What does it mean to exist morally within a society? Now, these three phases, I think, could be um, kind of easily located within broad kind of historical movements. So while Hegel doesn't really situate them and say, you know, this phase corresponds to, you know, this time in the history of the state or this one to another one, I think to some extent that can be argued. And I know some people have, like uh, David Harvey has made that case in his kind of Marxist reading. Um, but in any case, it's important to kind of keep that on the back burner so that we have a good uh, kind of jumping off point. Now, coming off of the last chapter, we just kind of rounded off our discussion of reason. So here, Hegel begins by saying that reason is essentially spirit when it is certain of its reality as truth and when it sees itself in a world and a world in it. Now, that's, I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, but spirit is, in a sense, that recognition of something exterior to yourself 
that you do not see as being completely alien to yourself. So, for example, I come in contact with another person. I do not see this other person as being wholly different than me, because if that was true, I wouldn't actually have any purchase on a kind of experience with or of that other person. So there must be some kind of guiding similarity, one that binds the two together. And spirit is kind of that mediating factor that binds the two together, that allows for a kind of intermediation between one thing, one person, one object, and something else. Now previously, in the preceding chapter, anything that we were kind of talking about was reduced to either a kind of rigid uh, materialism. So when Hegel was talking about observing reason or observing nature, he was pointing to the limits of what it meant to just look at nature as a material objective thing and to be able to say, hey, we can kind of deduce all of these fundamental properties and those properties will lead us to truth. Hegel says that that doesn't get us anywhere because it'll just lead to uh, like pure difference without any kind of recognition of similarities. Now, in contrast, there was also the problem of the spiritual essence. That is the thing that exists outside of objectivity, outside of actuality. So actuality is what, you know, can be seen, what is in the world, what is real, more or less. So here in the spirit chapter, he's turning his attention to ethical life, that is the life of an individual within a kind of community, as being actual, not as being some pie in the sky type thing or just some kind of pure or pure kind of base uh, reality or objectivity, but in being something that is starting to see the roots of both. That is roots of a kind of spirituality with an objectivity or a reality. So here spirit is reconciling the realm of culture with a realm of essential being, which was which were kept separate in the previous sections. Now, these terms, culture, essential being, let's put them on the back burner for now because we're going to really have to dig through them much later uh, because culture is a thing that he focuses on specifically in the second kind of subchapter here. But for now, kind of keep it in your mind that the spirit or that spirit wor is working to bring two seemingly disparate poles together. So that pushes us here into the first subchapter titled The True Spirit, The Ethical Order. So he says that spirit in the ethical order manifests itself as actual substance in the form of a nation, whereas it uh, manifests itself as actual consciousness in the form of those people that make up or are part of the nation. So as a universal enterprise, it establishes known laws, so things that are accepted to be true, whereas as a particular enterprise, that is in terms of the nation, it exists as like a, a government. So, you know, governments change, pe different people take, uh, you know, take power, which alters the landscape of what, you know, the individual component of that nation is. So someone takes um, charge of, of a nation, Many of the customs, laws, and everything stay the same. But that individual quality of that nation changes because there's a new face attached to it. So the nation in this way kind of respects individuality. 
it says, hey, I can myself appreciate individuality because I myself, that is being represented by a government, am an individual. And what I want, and this is a moniker really that extends quite far, uh, what I want is for the betterment of every person to be in relation to the betterment of the nation itself. So people working toward their own end being toward the end of the nation itself. Now, Hegel says that's all well and good, but we are confronted with another pretty profound institution in there as well, and that is the family. Now, Hegel says that the family in relation to the nation is unconscious. And the reason that it is unconscious is because it just assigns roles to each people, people, each person within the family. So if you're a mother, you have X, Y, and Z roles. If you're a father, you have X, Y, and Z roles. If you're a son, you have X, Y, and Z roles. Daughter, so on and so forth. Baby, dog, you know, it goes on and on. Now, Hegel says that that is, uh, it, it diminishes the potential of individuality because you have a kind of uh, set set of responsibilities. So he then presents two broad forms of law. He says that there is human law and divine law. Now, both of these can be found within both the nation and the family. But roughly, human law corresponds to the state or the nation, whereas divine law corresponds to the family. And the reason for that is that he suggests that human law focuses on individuals and actuality. That is, individuals coming into being as individuals, and they can be recognized as such. Whereas with divine law, what you have is a kind of universal attitude and not an emphasis on individuality. Now, that makes sense as to what in relation to how I just characterized it before, where the family was, you know, that unconscious breeding ground for just roles, you know, gender roles, uh, parental roles, child roles, whatever, that actually puts a, a damper, kind of slows down that process of actualization. Now, also, I said earlier that both human law and divine law can be found in both uh, spheres, that is the state and the family which is true, right? So there are instances of the state when people, you know, have to abide by certain laws, certain kind of roles, certain expectations that wrests them away from a kind of individuality. And the same inverse can be found in the family where there are these moments of a kind of individuality. So then the kind of um, struggle that we see here between family and nation is mirrored in a more general struggle between human and divine law. So that here we are seeing two disparate poles, human and divine law, family, nation, that aren't really coming together. They're, they're kind of stubbornly held apart. Now, in relation to this, the nation takes it upon itself to kind of be the equalizer, to maintain a sense of equilibrium between people, between these two institutions, so that, you know, things are held in check. And Hegel says that one of the ways it does this, quite interestingly, is by orchestrating wars, which makes sense because wars are, you know, forced people of a nation, no matter what station they belong to, to come together against, you know, a common foe. Okay, now 
Hegel is wrong. So with what, you know, he goes on to say. He says that the kind of split that we find between human and divine law, between family and nation, can be founded at an even more molecular level. That is the level of gender. So between men and women, specifically between brothers and sisters, where he says brothers, that is young boys, are uh, kind of embody the individualistic tenets of human law, whereas women, young girls, who, for him, completely give themselves over to the universal because they only care about others, not themselves, are therefore indicative of divine law or the family. So in his words, he says that the feminine side has the highest intuitive awareness of what is ethical because they have a more of an attachment with this kind of universal component. So it is the job of the son or the brother to get to kind of bring the family law or the family setting of divine law into the real actual world of human law in order to bridge the two kind of to kind of bridge the two and like this is kind of an aside but he says that on 274 in case you don't believe me that it's impossible for a brother and sister to have uh a kind of feelings toward one another that is romantic or sexual feelings because they share blood like as though that hasn't been disproven throughout all of history but anyways um and i would like to add as well that hegel had a pretty interesting relationship with his own sister where i believe you know it wasn't too long after his death that she committed suicide which i think some commentators take to be like evidence of the fact that hegel was right like, his sister couldn't keep living without having this man, essentially, that she could take care of. Because all of her identity was in this man. So, like, obviously this is silly. Um, so, we can't really forgive him for this. It just seems like a strange way to look at the world. But we have it here. So, we'll take it critically, but, but here it is. Now, by bringing it down to gender and giving it a face like this, because even the idea of nation and family is kind of abstract. It's, it's still a little bit, uh, you know, culturally grounded, whereas for him, gender is a lot more firm. He sees himself bringing what was previously reserved for a kind of abstraction or was maintained in abstraction into an actuality, into reality. So he can say, look, we have these real people in the world that in kind of embody these kind of what were once perceived to be abstract things like human law, divine law. So therefore, we are now moving onto the plane of reality, and therefore, we are moving closer and closer towards developing a kind of meaningful system of you know, community, of spirit, of mind, of being. And what is more, because he's presenting the fact that family and the state, you know, belonging to one another, and kind of having components of the other within each. He's saying that we're starting to see the foundations of spirit emerging here because it kind of, um, spirit is what maintains negativity or difference within itself. It doesn't foreclose it, doesn't disavow it. But for anyone who's familiar with this text, every time Hegel gives you the impression that, hey, you know, this is a good thing, we're, we're almost there, he just totally shuts down your dreams and pulls the rug out right from under you and says, well, actually, no. So that's going to happen a lot here. So just be prepared.
And in addition, so because we are seeing the kind of commonality between family and state, he says that justice is what is meant to kind of maintain now a sort of equilibrium so that one doesn't overtake the other. The individual human law tenants don't completely overshadow the divine, um, you know, universal tenants and, and so on. Now, in man and woman being uh, kind of opposites here, presenting a kind of dialectical um, relationship, Hegel says that this is opening up, kind of establishing self-consciousness as well. So self-consciousness being the possibility of not only being able to reflect into oneself, but recognizing an other that is too reflecting into themselves. And that happens when you're able to embrace your own negativity, that is what you perceive to be other than you, within yourself. Because then you actually give yourself a reason to look in. Because if you were just absolutely sure of yourself, you know, you have your stake in the world and that's it, you would just be what he calls a kind of lifeless, soulless, uh, non-moving thing, which is not good for him. Now, let's take the rug out from under us. Hegel says that this dynamic is still very rigid by saying, you know, uh, divine law is indicative of women, human law indicative of, the, of men and the state. What happens, Hegel says, if true self-consciousness is embraced, what he calls a kind of duty or movement, what happens if when that is embraced and troubles the dynamic, that equilibrium that was managed by justice or by the state in orchestrating wars? Well, he says that it troubles the system, it troubles that um, overarching narrative, and it leads to a sense of guilt on the part of the person that is, you know, acting that way. But he says that something interesting happens there because if we were really living in a world that embraced individuality, that person would be exalted. They would be the person that stands above the rest for they are being exactly what the state expects of them or what, you know, the institution of spirit expects of them. But they aren't exalted. In fact, Hegel says that they suffer a self-inflicting wound because they are, you know, are still in a kind of undeveloped stage of history and of state where people do not have the potential to be fully individual. They are still bound. So by removing themselves, by, you know, going forward with duty or kind of an own, their own drive, what... Um, what was presented in the last chapter is the kind of way of the heart, um, heart of the matter. Uh, what we see then is that this is not a fully developed stage yet. It is only the beginnings of one. So it is in the best interest of the state and the family to allow for individuality to be a part of it. But that very individuality is what calls attention to it, and it is what troubles it. So there must be a way then for... The state, representing individual human law, and the family, representing divine universal law, to operate harmoniously, where both are able to, you know, have their cakes and eat it too, so to speak. And that is because it would be totally impossible for Hegel for one to completely overshadow the other, for they are both dependent on one another. So any kind of attempt to, kind of, uh, for the family to undo the state would 
be followed with either nothing, nothing could come of that, or the family would also see its demise. But in this maintenance of a kind of individuality, the state and family must be careful, because if it goes too far, what we'd be left with is a kind of multitude of separate atoms, in his words, that would just be totally um, separated individuals without any kind of common stake. And this would be the moment that people only exist as persons. So then the law steps in and the law starts to mandate what it is each person can do as individuals. A kind of, uh, you know, this is kind of like what John Locke says a little bit, where it's the state's responsibility to maintain a kind of individuality, but under its guidance, under its control. So this is also the emergence of the legal subject, the kind of legal self that exists in the eye of the law, before the law, like Kafka writes of which is simply, for Hegel, a kind of illusion. It's an illusion of a spirit because they are still mandated and controlled. They're like kids in a sandbox, right? You can let your imagination run amok, but essentially you are going to be confined in the sandbox, where a spirit would, you know, do away with the sandbox and, and to some extent do away with the individual into a kind of openness. And with this comes the end of self-consciousness, because if you have a purely atomized system that is comprised purely of individuals all over the place each sees themselves to be kind of ruler and we saw this in the last section with the way of the world and the, the uh, way of the heart where people just wanted to have their own stake in the world we see that echoed here and that gets rid of self-consciousness because now there is no connection with the other the other is just existing in their own way totally separate so that is the problem for him with a kind of ethical system, one that deals with the ethical substance or ethical persons. So now, this puts us into the second subchapter, self-alienated spirit, culture. So this almost comes about teleologically. It almost follows what the ethical substance has done. So we saw the emergence of a kind of legal subject and these atomized individuals, which has now turned into culture. This sets the stage for culture which will essentially be a total chaotic system of everyone for themselves, like doing whatever they want, you know, for their, in their own stake, in their own place, in the world. Now here we see a kind of new split emerging. So whereas in the ethical substance we had human and divine law and then state and family, now here we have faith on one side and reason on the other. And then enlightenment will come to play within there as well. So faith is a kind of alternative. It's a, it's a way for people to kind of make up for the chaos of their lives. So in culture, people can you know, draw from anything. They can be whatever they want. And that can create a lot of discomfort, kind of um, lack of stability. That faith or that belief in a kind of religious enterprise might mitigate. Now, it sh should say that Hegel likes faith, but here he's very critical of it. And we're going to get in the next chapter, titled Religion, how he wants, you know, our relationship to the divine, to God, to religion, to actually be orchestrated. Whereas here, he's just identifying it as a kind of way to compensate for a loss of meaning. Now, in distinction to this, reason is, you know, easy enough to identify, and we, he's already 
in the last chapter kind of spoken about that. Uh, but he says that enlightenment is when um, a kind of culture and civilization in which all objects essentially become extensions of the same subject. So I want to read a little uh, section here on page 296 that I think captures this. He says that this insight, as the self that apprehends itself, completes the stage of culture, it apprehends nothing but self and everything as self. In other words, it comprehends everything, wipes out the objectivity of things, and converts all intrinsic being into a being for itself. In its hostility to faith, as the alien realm of essence, lying in the beyond, it is the Enlightenment. So that's not totally strange. I mean, the Enlightenment was the age in which anything could be done. You know, the natural world, absolutely. Let us discover its properties and find out more about ourselves through those properties, which might appear to be a kind of realization of spirit because it's a recognition of otherness within oneself. But because it doesn't go both ways, because there's a kind of disrespect implied there, that is, we do not respect the autonomy of the other, of the object, of the animal, whatever, that therefore we are only seeing, you know, a kind of one-way uh, interaction here that is totally <laughs> opposed to spirit proper. But this, interestingly enough, and this following how we've just characterized culture ushers in absolute freedom. So, you know, it's the pure age of the liberal, you know, individual mindset, right? I am ruler of my own domain, and everything is of me. So it's different from the last part, that is the ethical substance, or the ethical person, because at the stage that they moved into culture, they saw themselves as alone, isolated, totally just like uh, kind of automatons following the rule of law as legal subjects. Whereas now, everyone sees themselves as other, right? But not vice versa, of course, because that would undo that um, kind of illusion. And I will also mention, but we'll get into this in the next subchapter, that this sets the stage for moral consciousness. But, but we're going to get into that more later. So Hegel says that in this system, Spirit is kind of split. It is comprised of self-alienation. So everyone sees that, you know, their own lives for themselves. And pure consciousness, where they, or what he calls the aether of pure consciousness. So people, and it's kind of like the Stoic from, the, from earlier in the, the previous episodes, where the Stoic is the person that totally retreats into themselves, not concerned with the outer world because either they can't understand it. Now the person retreats into themselves and is sure of the outer world through their own pure, you know, maybe pure reason as, as uh, Kant critiqued, they can then deduce that everything is of them. So pure consciousness has a relationship to faith in that way because it's a giving oneself over, you know, through one's own uh, commitment to another, uh, a kind of lack of action. So they are just giving themselves to this thing that they, you know, have chosen themselves to do. Now, of course, very much like the split between human and divine law, family, state, 
These two things, that is pure consciousness and self-alienation, are shown not to be opposites. In fact, they rely very fundamentally on one another. But this alienation that is produced here, Hegel kind of appreciates because he, he sees it necessary to rest people outside of that sphere because alienation is not great. No one likes it. So this is certainly echoed in uh, Marx's work when Marx says, you know, the proletariat experiencing a certain degree of alienation from their labor will be forced to take over that, you know, the means of production so that they can actually have command over their lives. So here there's, you know, a recognition of oneself within the world, how the world is orchestrated at the base level, that is the economic level in Marx, or here at the level of actuality or individuality. Taking command of that is a way by which a person can re, um, kind of be self-realized, can attain realization. Now, in relation to this, he further taxonomizes. He kind of further breaks down all of the separate components within this dynamic between, like, state and family, you know, of individuals and their own self-alienation and kind of looking to faith or, or religion for stability. He says that there are so many other kind of splits to to present, and they are good and bad, where the good re is represented by the universal principles, that is the principle of, you know, the state, the principle of the system in which people are found, whereas the bad is represented by those people that refuse to accommodate that universal principle, so they take on their own individuality. Now, these take on another name as well, that is another split between power and wealth. So power is indicative of the state, whereas wealth is indicative of the individual, where it is in the state's interest, you know, speaking through this universal law, to maintain and take power, whereas for the individual, wealth is its kind of, its main, uh, the thing it's driving for, it's, God, there's a word, but I'm, it's eluding me. And then finally, this is also present in another split between the noble and the innoble. So the noble is the person that, you know, stands by the state as a, an active agent within that state for that state, whereas the innoble person is the one, like the bad person and the person going after wealth, the person that is simply, you know, vying for their own interest. But as yet, we do not actually have the tools to tell whether or not, you know, a value judgment can be placed on these different situations, if someone is good or bad, noble, ennoble, looking for power or wealth or whatever. So let me read a little short sentence here, a couple of sentences from page 316. So it is this absolute and universal inversion and alienation of the actual world and of thought. It is pure culture. What is learnt in this world is that neither the actuality of power and wealth, nor the specific notions, good and bad, or the consciousness of good and bad, the noble and the innoble consciousness, possess truth. On the contrary, all these moments become inverted, one changing into the other, and each is the opposite of itself. Which is super interesting now, because he's revealing that we do not really have, as he was um, kind of searching for in the, in the chapter when he was observing reason and nature and everything, for an overall notion under which to kind of understand things, a kind of truth 
that could give a sense to all these disparate properties and, and truths of the various different subjects and objects that he was looking at. Very much can be said here, where in the kind of purely almost relativistic situation called, called culture, no one can really lay claim to you know, a superior or inferior position. Now, the closest thing we come to a kind of overarching notion is self-consciousness, but it is an alienated self-consciousness. So we are all separate. We don't have a kind of recourse to a kind of truth, but we all know that we are self-alienated. Therefore, we can say we are common in our self-alienation. Now Hegel flips it on its head and says that if everyone then, as individuals, find their common stake in being self-alienated, then they are not individuals, for they have this kind of common stake. So we're still, we haven't arrived yet at a system in which, you know, people can exist for themselves, for the system as individuals, what, you know, it's called absolute spirit, or we're going to arrive to. So we still have this kind of separation and this kind of problem, this, this um, in inability to kind of reconcile both individuality and commonality. So Hegel draws a comparison between what this culture is doing and between what the earth does in being split between air, water, earth, and fire. So I've done this before, but I'm going to read a little section from J.N. Finley, who does the analysis at the end of the book, because I like how he puts it here to kind of, you know, make it make sense. Where he says that as nature diremps, that is, splits itself, into the elements of air, water, fire, and earth, so the social milieu diremps itself into a spirit of overall uniformity, a spirit of individual diversification, and a spirit which embodies both aspects and unites them in its self-consciousness. Now, because spirit is what is ultimately driven towards or driven towards, what we see, and this comes to kind of contribute to the understanding that the good and the bad, the noble and the innoble, power and wealth, are not very easy to understand. So the reason he says that is because the good, you know, being the state, universal law, and the, uh, the bad being, you know, individuals striving for wealth and particularism and individuality, he says that if spirit is what we're striving towards, and spirit is kind of um, characterized as being movement, then suddenly the idea of good and bad get shifted. They, they get reversed. So now the good becomes that wealth, that, that individual striving for wealth and movement, and the bad is that stagnant universal law. And the same can apply to the other ones. So in that way, just to kind of keep it on the back burner, that's how he justifies that claim that the good and the bad, noble, innoble, these terms fold into one another at a certain stage of spirit. And there is, at almost the most basic level, that is the level of language, uh, there is an impossibility of being an individual here. Because as soon as you proclaim yourself to be an I, that is an individual, then you must be confronted with the fact that everyone else is proclaiming that of themselves. So we must, like in the first episode, I believe it was, negate the negation, right? What we perceive as being a negation, that is, the fact that I myself am put in uh, kind of contact with another I that troubles my understanding then of myself, we must negate that 
and understand that we are all common in our being separate. We are all common in our being eyes, but those eyes are their own individual selves. Now, in addition to this discussion of the good and bad and uh, noble and ennoble, or well, wealth and power, we have to talk a little bit more about the noble and the ennoble. So previously in the ethical substance, what you had was state power, essentially, and then individuals. And those individuals were just kind of legal subjects that were given over to the power of the state. Now we are complicating that because we have noble persons, which include not just like a monarch per se, or the kind of ruler, but also include people like, I don't know, administrators, like military people, other governing bodies that working in favor of the state, but that are comprised of individuals. So they are noble, yet they still have some kind of purchase on individuality. Now, what happens here is that there's always the possibility that, you know, one of those actors in that domain, in the noble dom domain, are going to, like, take it upon themselves to be the I that is going to stand in for uh, the state. And here we only further complicate the supposed split between, you know, the noble and the ennoble, because now someone among the ranks of the noble then goes rogue and becomes the state. They become the universal in their, their proclaiming themselves to be like a monarch. They then disappear into a kind of universal attitude while still embracing this individualistic one. But of course, this isn't spirit because it um, crushes all opposition and just lays waste to everything that it doesn't like. And in this situation, then, it would follow that the state, because it then is kind of uh, infiltrated by an individual, then becomes concerned with, like, wealth or, like, individual interest, which is so topical today, especially when we consider, like, um, in the United States. Like, Donald Trump is a very good example of this ennoble person that is the person that was supposed to stand out among everything. And he just so smoothly floats into the presidency and becomes a kind of noble subject in that way. Like no one is willing to cross him. He stands in for what the state is. Yet they still see themselves as being opposed to the state because they still, in their own minds, see themselves as being, you know, the individual rogue that is in kind of vying for uh, a kind of authority in or against that universal state apparatus, what is called now so kind of easily, you know, like the deep state, for example. So in this like breaking down of all like difference in this kind of perpetual splitting and, and coming together and folding back into itself, what we see is a kind of spirit of this real world of culture uh, emerge, which is what he, he calls it, but that this produces a kind of what he calls a disinterested consciousness or a consciousness that is disinterested because it doesn't actually have or doesn't believe itself to have any claim in this world because this world is like so chaotic. It doesn't, it, there's no kind of real ground for it. So in that way, it tries to make sense of it, but it can't do that. And this is, it's up to the responsibility here of spirit to kind of intervene, uh, which it will, and it always does, instead of like imagining us perhaps going back and saying, you know, we have to essentially go back to the ethical landscape and say, or so that we could have a kind of more, um, a calmer 
a more controllable system. My God, my vocabulary is terrible today. I'm sorry. So now we're going to further break down this idea of faith and pure insight, which is another term here. So in the face of this kind of chaos, it is pretty nice to kind of retreat into yourself, into pure insight into, or, or thought or pure consciousness. Now, of course, pure consciousness is a part of the world. No matter how much it tries to, you know, retreat from it to kind of transcend the world, like Kant, you know, famously, or famously, like Kant argued in the first critique, you cannot claim that your like reason, that your truth, your, your pure concepts somehow float above the real world. And by virtue of that, it actually has a, an agenda. It actually tries to kind of devour and take over the real world to kind of calm things down through pure, like kind of, kind of stoic uh, reason. So this kind of pure consciousness can be further reduced into faith and pure insight. So I want to read a little section here on 329, where he says that in their appearance as mutually opposed, all content falls to faith for each moment. In its tranquil element of thought obtains an, an, an enduring being. Pure insight, however, is in the first instance devoid of content and is rather the pure vanishing of it. But by the negative movement towards what is negative to it, it will realize itself and give itself content. So faith sees itself as being full of content. You know, it draws upon religion, God, things like that, that it knows to be full. Whereas pure insight, the kind of, I guess the skeptic maybe, someone who's just like, just the unhappy consciousness and the stoic. Anyways, the person that just purely thinks and butts up against the world uh, kind of obtains its, its identity, its content by virtue of that very action. So faith has content but it does not have self-consciousness, whereas pure thinking doesn't have content, yet it has self-consciousness. Now, in this struggle between faith and pure insight, eventually pure insight will come to take over because it, you know, devours other things. It goes after other things because that is what its content is. Its content is its movement. So I guess to kind of take one step back here, there are three fundamental properties of pure consciousness that is diremptid into faith and pure insight, where the first property is that each is an intrinsic being on its own account. Two, each stands in relationship with the actual world in an antithesis to pure consciousness. And three, each is related within pure consciousness to the other. Now both, as I already mentioned, are a way to kind of make sense of a chaotic world of culture. And they are, in a sense, the realization of a self because they turn everything back into, you know, oneself because that is where all thinking happens, where all selfness is believed to be. Whereas, of course, Hegel wants to trouble that, saying that, no, selfness can only be attained in relation to others, among others, among other things. Now, pure insight and the reason it kind of wins out is because it does have some recognition of this because it its movement is what it is, that is its ontologic, ontological nature, it actually has some kind of relationship with otherness because it goes there. It goes to otherness. It goes to the unknown. Now, of course, pure insight is limited. And he says that it all it can do is kind of attain some degree of actuality in its movement, but that this actuality is essentially comprised of scattered traits into a general picture 
and then makes them into an insight for everyone. So this is a kind of picture thinking presented in the last episode that doesn't actually live at the realm of reality. It's still too much bound within itself. Now, kind of in, I guess, contrast to that, we have the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment, he says, is um, the notion of rational self-consciousness which has its existence in the general mass, but is not yet present there qua notion. So Enlightenment opposes faith kind of alongside pure insight, because it wants us to kind of be wary of what he calls, you know, the priests and despots who essentially claim to speak on behalf of, you know, truth, because um, the Enlightenment wants to, you know, get at this truth without relying upon a total removal of oneself from, you know, the world. So then here, another contrast between Enlightenment thinking in relation to pure insight that is opposed by naive consciousness. So naive consciousness, that's like the mass of people that, you know, go to church and believe everything that a priest tells them to be, you know, what God is or, or how to uh, have an existence or a relationship to God. Now, Hegel is really suspicious of that and says that, well, that's not great because it's just a kind of illusory connection to God or absolute being, as it will also become to, called, to be called. But he says that it also serves a little bit of a productive function. So here we have the split between naive consciousness, you know, that mass of people going to church, for example, and pure insight. So he says that naive consciousness is important because it gives absolute being a kind of liberty. It kind of, it, those are his words, it gives uh, complete liberty to absolute being. Because absolute being is this thing that's seen as being absolutely pure and free in relation to uh, an automaton-like mass. Whereas what it also gives is to pure insight, a kind of being for self that is made to be godlike to some extent. So it serves a function for there to be, uh, for there to be a kind of naive consciousness for Hegel. And what is common then is there how both of them are driven towards or want to maintain elucidate absolute being that thing that stands outside of them that can give them purpose or meaning so in this pure insight taking on this kind of godlike role that the naive mass kind of fuels it then you know tries to infiltrate everything like he says like a perfume in the air you can't really see it and it's pretty subtle but it does exist there and it does go into you it does become you but he also says that it sometimes does it violently as well. Now, in proper Hegelian fashion, he asks, well, how is it possible for pure insight to actually devour things, to actually um, kind of infiltrate things, unless those things had some kind of connection to pure insight? So he gives the example of reason, where reason can only engage with what is already considered reasonable. So if something is not reasonable, then reason can have no stake there, no purchase on it. So everything then that pure insight comes into contact with is then revealed to be part of itself. And again, we're seeing this split, the split between pure insight and naive consciousness getting disturbed a little bit. And this essentially reveals that pure insight has a propensity for self-consciousness because it, it's beginning to recognize itself in an other it is now being for self. It sees itself as, 
you know, having these attributes that are its own, but that are found in others. Now, in his words, it's like um, his certainty of himself is for me the certainty of myself. So when enlightenment thinking looks at faith and says, hey, uh, you're all a bunch of naive, um, I guess, robots, you should really start to think for yourself. What is being revealed here for Hegel is enlightenment's own ignorance, because it is failing to recognize the common, the kind of commonality between the two. And that commonality can be found in terms of faith, um, I guess, through its inwardness of the individual consciousness and through the universal presence in everyone of faith to it. So there is in the act of faith something that is very much a part of what enlightenment thinking is. That is the individuals being a part of something greater that they feel themselves all participating in. So it's locating this commonality that Hegel loves to do and disturbing that, you know, split. So enlightenment does three things to faith for Hegel. First, it rests absolute being from its sensuous properties. Number two, in response to this resting, it makes consciousness the th and the thing it cognizes, that is sense certainty, wholly true. And three, now we have consciousness that can be in relation to absolute being. And it is in this, in this recognition of the other, through like, kind of like returning back to sense certainty, where you see something and you know it to be true. It is the, th the tree is, you know, the tree. Um, because we all have that experience of it, that we move beyond what was considered a relationship between the good and the bad, you know, good being part of the, the nobility, the people that exist for, in and for the system, the bad being the people for themselves. And we see a shift here. So it's no longer the relationship between good and bad. It is the relationship between being in itself and being for another. And in this moment, all people then might have different properties, they might have different qualities among themselves, but they're all common in their, I guess, common stake in their relation to the absolute. But, you know, we can't be naive here and say that, oh, there's now a, a harmonious relationship between enlightenment and faith. They still look upon each other with great disdain. And that is why Hegel has to keep moving through this and say, while it might look like we are seeing spirit kind of emerge here, spirit in its actuality, we are not. We are still caught in a kind of split that is wholly problematic. So here we see the emergence, right, of kind of self-consciousness, which moves beyond consciousness. And this move allows for a kind of movement. But of course, there's always this kind of resistance that emerges. And this resistance is in the form of the notion, a resistance to movement, a kind of even a suspicion of it for being a kind of unconscious movement, a movement for movement's sake, not a movement for, you know, sake of spirit or as a product of spirit, but simply for movement's sake. And here again, or maybe not again, but here we see maintained another split between the self-moving, you know, uh, being in itself and being, being for another suddenly be put into distinction with absolute being that is just taken as a kind of beyond. So there is yet, there has, there has not been yet a full recognition or a full um, understanding of what the absolute is in relation to being for another, being in itself, that we are kind of now arriving at. 
So in the face of this, consciousness is incredibly confused because it doesn't know where to actually find the absolute. So either it exists in this kind of beyond that is outside of the world, or it exists in the world and we might actually have a way to understand it. And so it says either it exists in matter and it kind of derives from sensuous being, or it exists in, as a kind of pure being, that beyond, the transcendent. But what these, this perspective fails to acknowledge for Hegel is that they have yet to accept what Descartes said. So when Descartes said, you know, cogito, cogito, ergo sum, I think therefore I am, what we see there is the, the coming together of thought with reality, with being. So if we can bring those together, we can see how, you know, the absolute exists both as pure being and as reality, which consciousness can't, it's not able to do it yet. Now these come together now in a kind of action. And this action is what is called the useful, where, you know, one's identity is kind of made from their being existing in a world that they have a, a common purchase in. They, they are useful to that world. They have a utility, um, but they're still maintained a kind of distinction here. So what is considered useful then allows for this play of absolute freedom because, you know, people are useful as individual subjects. Uh, and it's, it, what this essentially does is it overcomes seeing the object or other as completely foreign. So here we might hear the echoes of what came earlier with the split between the Lord and the bondsman, where for Hegel, the bondsman was kind of privy to a, a, a special kind of knowledge because it has a relationship to the world, to otherness that the master or the Lord doesn't have. And in this, the universal and the individual become one. But of course, this raises some problems. So the only way we can understand the universal then will depend upon these kind of individual enterprises. The ones he lists are like the legislative, the judicial, and the executive, which essentially threatens the idea of there being a universal self-consciousness, where things being this kind of atomistic way, which we still haven't gotten past, uh, then, you know, problematically are reduced to these single atomistic moments. And then in response, the universal, in its effort to maintain itself as universal, does away with all these individual moments, which Hegel calls the most violent of deaths. He describes it as like drinking a cup of water, where it's an erasure. It is an, a, a simple um, annihilation without any you know pain or suffering per se, but it just disappearance of um, individuality. So the only way that this is overcome for Hegel is if individuals are not swallowed by this kind of universal impulse, but are instead taken as pure knowing and willing and universal, that too sees value in pure knowing and willing. So this is essentially opposed to the idea of like a pure government, or an overarching government, or pure anarchy, that is uh, all atomistic individuals. So we're seeing the two come together. And with this kind of coming together, this active engagement among individuals, we see the emergence of the moral spirit, what was mentioned earlier. And this brings us here into the last subchapter, spirit that is certain of itself, morality. So now he says the object is for consciousness itself, the certainty of itself. And he continues, for self-consciousness, its knowledge is the substance itself. So the idea of morality isn't totally strange here, I don't think, because if you're coming into contact with other individuals that you see to be purely individuals, like yourself, 
then the question of morality is extremely germane because it must be asked, what does it mean then to be a moral agent within that world? And of course, well, maybe not of course, but what we're going to be confronted with is almost the impossibility of that, of a moral attitude. So with this, we see the birth of another split. Now, a split between morality and nature, where nature is the site upon which morality can exist. Because as we just kind of return to the idea of sense certainty, that is, things existing in the world, what we are confronted with is almost like a quote-unquote truth of things. And that is natural. It's a natural truth that we cannot ignore. But morality has trouble with this, because morality says nature, you are so indifferent to anything that might mean something, this makes me feel very uncomfortable. And I expect you, nature, to care about problems, to care about things in the world, to care about people. But in so doing, in moral consciousness's attempt to kind of wrest nature from its place, it actually gets rid of nature's individuality and makes it only a product of moral consciousness. Consciousness, sorry. So this split can also be thought of in terms of pure thought versus sensuous aspect of consciousness, or reason versus sensuousness, that essentially both make up a half of a single consciousness. That is, the split I have between myself as a moral being, and I know myself to be moral because of the way, you know, I've intuited, I've thought my way through it, versus what, you know, I want as a sensuous being. It's something in the world that has needs and wants that... I have very little control over. And it is morality's job then to kind of mediate that, to mediate between reason and sensuousness to be able to say, hey, that what you're doing there is not good. Uh, this is good. So therefore you should you know, do that. But because morality only exists in mediating these two things conflicting with one another, that is reason and sensuousness, Hegel says that this conflict in order for morality to exist must continue ad infinitum. It must go on forever. Otherwise, morality will fade away. And this is the maintenance of a kind of uh, what is called the final purpose of self-consciousness, where the object enters the sphere of the subject and where the universal in particular are simply one. But what, what happens then when someone acts of their own accord? So if someone does something that morality doesn't like, morality is faced with almost a crisis. Morality says, wait, I thought I was pure, universal, all-knowing. Why would anyone slight me? Why would anyone go against my, my word? And then to justify morality's attitude, it then, you know, falls back into something like faith and says, well, uh, we, we, we know that this is actually right and that you, the individual, are wrong because we have a kind of God to tell us or an absolute being or a thing that is outside of it. Because if it didn't do that, morality would have to come to terms with the fact that it is not perfect. It still has problems. And because it has to kind of fall back upon a, a transcendent place to justify its feelings, what we are caught, still kind of caught in, is this kind of pure insight, in this faith that is not totally given over to reality, to actuality. And by virtue of that, it actually casts the other in a kind of thought-like space where the other isn't actually experienced, the other is just kind of thought. And they're, through that thought, judged. You know, they fall outside the parameters of proper conduct and therefore must be, I guess, 
you know, taught a lesson. So how does morality get over this? Well, what morality does is it says, okay, fine. If I'm going to be screwed by, you know, looking at these transcendent poles for kind of justification of my feelings about these attitudes, these actions, uh, then I'm going to rationalize these actions as actually being for me or as being a part of reason. So the way people act is actually, you know, not an alien thing. And in this, we, we see it revealed that morality is actually the thing that is bending, twisting. What was once perceived to be universal, true, is now being revealed to bend to the will of the sensuous, to what was considered, you know, just um, fanciful, um, individualistic enterprises. So because of its constant bending and twisting, and because it doesn't actually have a kind of what is called um, holy moral lawgiver to give it truth, uh, it is revealed then that morality is imperfect. It has problems. So consciousness then must come to terms with the fact that reality and thought are not so separate. In fact, there is the, the idea of there being a universal, like pure, inalienable truth has been shown to be totally wrong. So consciousness then kind of turns back into itself here because it's scared, because it's like, oh my God, I put all my chips into this thing called morality to save us. What am I going to do now? So what it does here, that is what consciousness does, is it does away with these moral substances and essentially recon reconciles self and other, proclaiming the only truth to be itself, which is the self of there being a self and another, another self. And as such, consciousness doesn't claim a kind of uh, purchase on truth or a claim to truth that, you know, morality did. It comes to terms with the fact that it can't, know everything and it won't ever know everything and it is therefore in hegel's words the negativity of everything determinate it is that which doesn't know what anything really is but the only commonality is that all these things are different and this is also put in this way where he says that conscience stands directly in a relation of equality with every self-consciousness so i didn't really introduce this shift here. But we move from morality to conscience, not consciousness per se, but conscience of just kind of knowing what one must do, but not knowing why, not knowing if anyone else shares that, but just knowing that one has something to do and that that doing is exactly what is interesting to Hegel. But once again, there's a problem here because if we have this split of individuals that all you know work for themselves for their own duty for their own purchase on the world then we run the risk of having everyone split apart again now what brings them together is language in a sense where he says that language only emerges as the middle term meeting mediating between independent and acknowledged self-consciousnesses so the person that exists for themselves is what is called the beautiful soul so the beautiful soul is the person that kind of like the ignoble person, the person that, you know, exists on their own, comes to also be equated with evil, kind of like before with the bad. Now, these kind of come together when we start to think about things, as I just said, in terms of language, where when someone proclaims that they are an I, you know, they say I am, then someone else says I am. I already mentioned this much earlier, but anyways... They come together in both of their claims to this I-ness. 
So, yeah, the the beautiful soul in this instance is the person that's kind of looked down upon as wanting to exist for their own self. Where they are somewhat, I guess, skeptical about their conscience and choose instead to look on the world in their own stoic way, which still isn't great, but we're still we're moving closer to this thing called absolute spirit because they don't do away with the world. They believe in the world, but they're just kind of concerned that they don't fit within it. And it is then kind of judged as being evil for renouncing its place within the world. So if this beautiful soul recognizes itself or this evilness that is that stands outside of the system recognizes itself to be evil or wretched or other, it then actually propels itself back into this system because this is a system comprised exactly of that, of others, of individuals that do not fit within a mold, but are just recognized qua their uh, own driving. They're striving for their own being. Now with this, we see the total dissipation of a thing that can lay claim to universal truth. So, in the case of judgment, for instance, judgment looks upon evil and says that must be corrected, but in so doing, because this is a system predicated upon individuality, it then reveals itself to be um, not universal, but its own individual in relation to the individual evil, so they are both evil, which then cancels out the evilness, making them both good. It negates the negation. It makes them both part of this system. And with this comes absolute spirit. So in his words, he says that the word of reconciliation is the objectively existent spirit, which beholds the pure knowledge of itself qua universal essence. In its opposite, in the pure knowledge of itself qua absolutely self-contained and exclusive individuality, a reciprocal recognition which is absolute spirit. So that recognition of the other, that is kind of bound up with this thing called pure knowledge that is able to recognize this, the kind of self, and able to turn that back into oneself, ushers in absolute spirit. Now here to conclude, and to bring up this idea of language once more, Hegel finishes off this chapter by saying this, The reconciling in which the two eyes let go of their antithetical existence is the existence of the eye, which has expanded into a duality, and therein remains identical with itself and, in its complete externalization and opposite, possesses the certainty of itself. It is God, manifested in the midst of those who know themselves in the form of pure knowledge. And that sets the stage for what will come in the next episode, the next chapter, religion, which will be the last one. And it's significantly shorter, so that'll be nice too. Okay, I hope that helped, uh, if anyone made it this far. You know, if I mucked anything up, tell me about it. I want to know. Or if there are things to add, I'd love to know. I obviously didn't talk about everything because it's so long and he talks about a lot. Uh, but I think I give a pretty fair assessment or presentation of what is going on here. But again, with that being said, if I had made any issues or errors, let me know. And for now, see you next time.